welcome to the Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast that brings together some of the world's most innovative thinkers to weigh in on matters concerning the future of ourselves and our planet, and to discuss the future not as something to be predicted, but to be created. In each episode, your hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Tsao, and moderator, Nora Cesar, will converse with guests from numerous disciplines to help us navigate the new worldview, which derives its wisdom from a synthesis of ancient and modern, East and West, science and spirituality. From these seemingly divergent perspectives, we will demonstrate how we can create a new narrative and usher in the dawn of a better era. So, welcome everyone. Today's episode will be focusing on Hinduism. Our guest is the amazing Sadhvi Bhavagati Saraswati, or as most people call her, Sadhviji. Allow me to introduce her. As a Stanford PhD student living in Los Angeles, California, Sadhvi was comfortable with her life. Despite years of grappling with an eating disorder and trauma from her early childhood, she felt as if she was successfully navigating her way through early adulthood. When she agreed to travel to India, and mostly because she loved the vegetarian food there, Sadhvi would have never imagined that she would be embarking on a journey of healing and awakening. Her best-selling book, From Hollywood to the Himalayas, describes her odyssey towards the divine enlightenment and inspiration through her extraordinary connection with her guru and renewed confidence in the pleasure and joy that life can bring. Today, she's one of the most preeminent female spiritual teachers in the world based in the Parmat Niketan Ashram in Rishikesh, India, where she gives spiritual discourses, satsang and meditation. She leads myriad humanitarian pro programs and serves as a unique female voice of spiritual leadership throughout India and the world. Welcome, Sadhviji. Thank you so much. It's such a joy and honor to be together with you. Thank you. And please allow me to introduce quickly our hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Fred Sao. So welcome back our esteemed Irvin Laszlo, two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, philosopher and system scientist, author or co-author of over 106 books, founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, the Club of Budapest, and the recipient of multiple honors and awards, like the Goye Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandir of Peace Prize, and the Luxembourg Peace Prize. And Fred Zhao, business leader, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science, author, chairman of the Family Business Network's Council of Wisdom, and founder of the prestigious Octave Institute, fusing ancient wisdom and quantum science as a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life, mindfully lived at the new levels of consciousness and freedom. Welcome everyone. I would like to manage this session today, just as we do with all sessions. This is going to be a nice discussions, but first I would like to invite our wonderful guest, Sadhviji, to spend about 10, 15 minutes talking about Hinduism. 
So Sadwiji, please tell us about your work because I know you've been working on so many things and including a monumental project on the 11 volume Encyclopedia of Hinduism. So please, this is, this is a lot of things. So can you share us shortly? I don't think it's possible, but whatever you wish to share with us and the audience about the Hinduism as a worldview. Sure. And thank you for the opportunity. First of all, it's really important to know that the, the very word Hindu or Hinduism is not a word that appears anywhere in the Hindu scriptures. It was a word given to people who lived on the banks of the Sindhu River in what we now call the Indus Valley Civilization. And since they couldn't pronounce S for Sindhu, the invaders who came in referred to the people living on the banks of the Sindhu River as the Hindus, because they couldn't say S for Sindhu. And it's important to mention this only because the term that Hindus use for their tradition is Sanatan Dharma. Now, Dharma is a word that we could spend the next three days only on that word. But really, in short, it means a the right way or a way of life or a way of righteousness or the very core essence of something is how you would define Dharma. Sanatan means eternal. So essentially, it's an eternal way of righteous living. And this is important because it's not a tradition about dogma. No one is going to say, you must worship in this way. This is the right way. That's the wrong way. The Hindu tradition has almost, you could say, an infinite number of different ways of worship, different lineages, different traditions within the umbrella of Hinduism. And that's because we believe that everything is divine. People have a mistaken belief that Hinduism is a polytheistic religion, but it isn't. It's also not just a monotheistic tradition. It's not the idea that there's one God existing somewhere out there. The belief is actually that there is nothing but God, that every single thing is pervaded by the divine. And so the very creation itself is sacred. There's a beautiful teaching in the Upanishads that says, Isha Vasyamidam Sarvam, Yatkincha Jagatyam Jagat. And that means everything in the universe is pervaded by the divine. There's nothing, no one, nowhere that is not pervaded by the divine. So that means there's really an infinite number of ways that one can connect with the divine in a specific form, by a specific name, 
with no form, with no name, in the form of the tree in your backyard, in the way through the sound of Om, through your own grandmother, through a blade of grass, it doesn't matter because anything and everything is divine. So it's been an extraordinary tradition to be brought into. I was not born a Hindu, not raised a Hindu. I didn't know anything about Hinduism until I came to India about 26 and a half years ago now. As you mentioned, I was in the middle of getting a PhD in psychology. I had graduated undergrad from Stanford and then was doing my PhD in psychology. And I was raised in a reformed Jewish family. And when I came to India, I didn't know that I was searching or seeking. I came, as you mentioned, I agreed to come. I was an avid traveler, but had traveled mostly throughout Europe and England and across America. I agreed to come because I loved Indian food. I was a very strict vegetarian. And when we came to Rishikesh, which is where I now live, which is a, a holy city of India, but I didn't know that. And I stood on the banks of the sacred Ganga River, what we call the Ganges River. I didn't know that this river was worshipped as the mother goddess. I just thought it was a beautiful river. But as I walked down to the river to simply what I thought was going to be to put my feet in the river, to freshen up, to cool down. We had been traveling all day, had just arrived. Was I was hot and tired. When I stood on the banks of this sacred river and I had an extraordinary experience of opening and awakening and divine connection, suddenly I could see with not just my eyes, but with every way of knowing that I had, I could see the divine and it wasn't separate from me. I had always felt very separate and suddenly I was divine. I had also always felt like there was something wrong with me, kind of at the core, a sense of not enoughness, not worthy enough, not good enough. And suddenly in that moment, it was an experience of this omnipresence of divinity that pervaded everything, including myself. And I wasn't separate from that. And it was such an extraordinary experience and it took a long time to even understand what that meant, but it wasn't an experience of a Hindu God. And it didn't come in and fill me with a sense of, oh, now I need to pray to God in this form. It was an experience of an infinite divinity. And as it turns out, that is exactly what what Hinduism teaches. It's a, a tradition that's really rooted in how we live and every minute and every moment of every day being an offering 
to the divine. Here where I live in Rishikesh at a beautiful ashram called Parmarth Niketan. It's one of the largest spiritual institutions in India. We begin every day with a sacred fire ceremony called a yagna or a heaven ceremony. We have it again in the evening. And it's a ceremony of offering. We offer seeds, rice, sesame, ghee into the fire as a symbol of offering. Every minute, every moment, every thought, every word, every action, everything we are to the divine. And that's, that's a ceremony, a ritual that is probably the most core fundamental ritual in the Hindu tradition is this yagna ceremony. And in that ceremony, it's an offering to the divine, an awareness that we are just an instrument. And we offer to the divine that which keeps us also separate from the divine. So in addition to offering all of who I am and what I have and my resources and my skills and my time and my energy and my life to the divine, we offer also all of that which blocks us from the divine. Because one of the very core Hindu beliefs is that each of us at the core is divine. And that we simply are covered in ignorance, what we call maya, that makes us think that we are the body, that makes us think we are its size, its shape, its color, its race, its religion, its bank account, its story, its history. And we offer all of that into the fire so that our vision may be purified. And, you know, in the introduction, you mentioned my memoir, Hollywood to the Himalayas. And for me, that was really this paradigm shift when I came here was I had always identified as my body, as its size and its shape and its age and its skills, what it could do, how it was succeeding in school, what had happened to it what it had been through, my story, my history, I had always identified as that. And so I suffered the way that most of us suffer. When I came to India, came to the Himalayas, what I was taught was you have a body, but you're not the body. You are the soul, you are the spirit, you are divinity. And so, Hollywood to the Himalayas is not just the physical journey that I took in my life, but it's actually also the shift in mindset and way of thinking from a way of suffering into a way of freedom. This Hollywood way of thinking, kind of a Western paradigm, you could say, of you are your bank account. You are the number of followers you have on Facebook. You are this, you are that. To the Himalayan way that says you are not that. You are the soul, the spirit, undivided, inseparable from the creator and the creation. The core mantras that people meditate on are mantras that say, for example, 
so hum, which means I am that, or aham brahmasmi, I am the divine. So it's a constant remembrance of the self as divine, but also as everything else as divine. Um, all of the the sacred creation, you know, we are we're rooted in what you could think of as kind of the Ten Commandments of a Dharmic life. I wouldn't say a Hindu life because it's not actually religious concepts. It's the core of what the sage Patanjali gave us in yoga. So yoga is actually not just physical postures, the way that sadly in the West, we think yoga is just touching your toes or standing on your head. But yoga, the word actually means union. And it's a union of the small self, the individual self, to the supreme self. And the foundation of it there's eight limbs of yoga. I'll, I'll give you this as the last piece of it. There's eight limbs of yoga that Patanjali gave, which is what we today call Ashtanga yoga, means the eight limbs. And asana, the physical practices, are limb number three of eight. Now, as anyone knows, you can't build a building starting on the third floor. If you don't have a foundation, that building's going to topple. And the foundation of yoga is what's called yam and niyam, or in English, people talk about yamas and niyamas. And there isn't time to go into all of them now, but just to give you an idea, the first couple, it's nonviolence, ahimsa, truthfulness, satya, non-stealing, Asteya, non-hoarding, apigraha. Now, this is, this is the foundation of what we consider a yogic life, means a spiritual life, a dharmic life, a life that is rooted and anchored in truth, the awareness of union. It means we live simply so that others may simply live. It means that we live truthfully. We live nonviolently. We don't steal or hoard resources, energy, people, anything. So the very foundation of what we call Hinduism is actually rooted in how we are with the world because we recognize that the world is divine, the world is sacred. So we must tread with love with care, with honesty, with sharing, with compassion, and moving up to that ultimate union with God, which is the eighth limb, which you move after the postures, after asanas, we move into pranayam, and then we move into the levels of working with the mind, finally into meditation. And then the eighth limb, which is samadhi, or ultimate divine union, the drop merging with the ocean of the self, this individual self that I thought was separate, 
merges back into the, the full supreme true self. So I could, I could go on for a lot longer, but that's been almost 15 minutes. So I will, I'll stop here. Thank you so much, Sadhvi. That was beautiful. And I, I, I really don't have any words, but I know someone who can offer some words and that's Irwin. So Irwin, please. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Hinduism has all deep levels of every religion is a unitary, unitary religion. It's embracing, it's a oneness religion. And it's also, I would say, it's my religion. I've had some wonderful experiences. I've once spent several weeks, a month or more, at the Oneness University with Bhagavan as being mm. the, the guru who was then personally invited me and I had the pleasure of his blessing and his company and lived there, as we just heard, in an ashram. We worked, lived in, in the same way for a while. And it left, of course, a big impression on me. I have continued to work then in, a, in, a, in, in the Indian Hindu tradition, which was based on his Aurobindo, his Aurobindo thought, it's also related. I would be very interested to hear our discussion about, about that as well. Having been the chair for some while, a member for a long time, and the chair for some while of the Aurobindo Commission, visiting Aurobindo twice a year, and again living there, a kind of a life in which you are walking barefoot on the ground, you're eating vegetarian, and you try to live in, in, in a sacred environment with a holy monument, a fantastic monument, uh, which is a sacred place that you can enter and feel the difference. So these are experiences that have left a big mark on me. My concern is now how Hinduism, how this religion of universal divinity, of one God and 10,000 gods, as they say, how this religion can relate, provide inspiration without suppressing sub the differences of other religions. For, for humankind, and it's a very critical juncture of our, history, of our history, how we can be one together, even if the others are not Hindu, but they are all divine. And if you can all recognize that we are all divine. There's one quote that is, is I like to do, like to quote, it comes from Einstein. It's so very relevant from about what we just heard, to what we just heard. He said, two ways to live your life, either as if, as if everything is a miracle or as if nothing is. I think he tried to live his life as if everything is a miracle. I try to do that myself. This is a miracle, miraculous universe. And because it is, it is also divine. It is transcendental. It is not just one thing here and now. It is all things at all times. Everything is a part of this. This is also quantum science, of course, the hologram, the, 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 the cosmos as a hologram. How can we get this idea across to people so that we can join together without giving labels to each other? We say, he's a Hindu, 
he's a Buddhist, he's a Muslim, he's a Christian, he's, he's a uh, native spiritual person or whatever. This is a great task that we have in front of us. Live on one planet as one people with the divinity in us. Get that across without suppressing other in, other in, injections, other insertions of beauty and of divinity and of goodness. So I think we have a lot to learn from Hinduism, an ancient, ancient art. My last thought that I should like to bring in is my work, the words of my good friend, Dr. Karan Singh, I'm sure that's it, mm-hmm. he knows. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we have done many, many things together, including the Aurobindo the Commission. When I visited him, I also visited his, his ashram up in, 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 in Kashmir and Jammu, into those areas. I was also invited to the Maharaji of Jammu in the Pink Palace. So I've seen experiences which are really made, made a mark on me. Taran used to sing, you in the West, I mean, sort of with a little smile, you in the West were still living in the caves. And we yeah. here in India, we had been building temples and producing works of art and approaching the divine. It's an old cold culture, much older than the West actually. And it's a culture whose time has come. It's time is now to recognize now to recognize that we have all this divinity. There are one world, one God, and fifty thousand gods, and there are myriad gods. I think you would agree to that. We can all worship together because we are all divine. Okay, that's a beautifully said, and I, I appreciate having that recalled. I really, I think our task today is to see how this conception, as all deep religious conceptions, can take hold of the mind of people so that we can live together on this planet without killing each other, without destroying our environment. That is the big task before us. It's a great task, I think, that Hinduism is very, very well qualified to confront. Let me just end with this note to say that I am an amateur Hinduist. Just as, as I'm an amateur Buddhist and an amateur because I'm not really practicing Christian and likewise coming from a reformed Jewish family as you have been. So I like all these religions to become one without destroying their differences. So thank you very much for joining us, Abhiji, and for inspiring us to seek that unity which makes all of us divine which is what we truly are. Thank you. It's it's such a joy to be with you again, finally. We were together so many years ago in Mexico briefly with Barbara Marks Hubbard. And I just, I remember that beautiful connection and to be together and to to hear you again is such a great joy. And you are most definitely not an amateur um, by any means. The, The wisdom that you shared is wisdom that people who consider themselves experts don't 
frequently actually have access to. So there's such a wealth of wisdom that you've shared. In response to your question about how Hinduism can bring this to the world, a couple of different thoughts arose as you were asking. The first is that we have a, a teaching in our scriptures that says, Vasudev Katumbakam. And it means the world is one family. And in a family, we are in a healthy family. We have an acceptance of, even an embrace of differences. One kid plays soccer, another kid plays the piano, another is a math whiz, and that's fine. Healthy, functional, stable parents are going to be able to very easily and happily have one child playing soccer and another doing math and another playing music or singing or doing art without needing them all to do the same thing. It's not this one plays soccer, therefore you must all play soccer. So if we take that model into our world, it becomes not about making everybody the same, but simply about recognizing we are one family. We look differently. We speak different languages. We have different ways of approaching the divine, but that's okay. Because as long as we recognize that we are a family, that we are children of the earth, even if we can't agree on a name or a form or a way of addressing God, fine, we're indisputably children of the earth. So even if we simply say children of Mother Earth, in fact, the word Vasudev, when we say Vasudev Katumbakam, it's actually that we are the family of Vasundara, the mother, mother earth goddess. We are her children. So that I think is one really powerful way that we can bring this teaching to everyone is we don't have to be the same, but we are one family. And as we are open to and accepting of differences in our own families, we need to be able to open our arms and accept that in our world family. Another thought that came to me is within the Hindu tradition, there's a great emphasis on our third eye. So we put this tilak there every day. Today, I noticed when I was in the restroom just before sitting down that I still have the the extra tilak that was put there when I went to a function at our school this afternoon. It's the way of greeting people. So we have that which I had applied in the morning and then that which they applied on me in the afternoon. And we do that because this is the third eye. It's an, a, a chakra, an energy center that is said to be the energy center of the power of discrimination. It's called the Agya Chakra. And it's that energy center that enables us to see truth from falsehood. Falsehood being differences, form, packaging. The truth being oneness, essence, 
content. These two eyes see form. They see difference. They see at a distance. In order for these eyes to be able to see anything, I've got to hold it at an arm's length. It has to be separate from me. Get too close and I no longer can see it. And so it's great for navigating the freeway or the street or around the furniture of your own house, but it doesn't actually show us the truth of who we are and the truth of who others are. And so this eye, this third eye is a part of great importance in our meditation, in our yoga, in our attention and intention to open it so that we can see the truth, which is the content, the essence, not the packaging, not the form, but the divinity within the soul, the spirit, the truth. So if we all could simply use our power of attention and intention to allow our own third eye to open, we would be able to actually see oneness. We would stop being dependent and reliant only upon seeing form and differences and separation, but actually to being able to see the oneness and the divine in all. And the third piece that came to me as you were speaking so powerfully and beautifully in terms of our role here is teaching from the Bhagavad Gita in which Krishna says, whenever darkness is overpowering light, whenever a dharma means lack of dharma, absence of dharma, is overpowering dharma, means whenever unrighteousness is winning out over righteousness. He says, I incarnate, God incarnates as form on earth in order to bring back light to the darkness, in order to bring back dharma to the adharma. And elsewhere in the Gita and throughout the Vedic scriptures, it said in so many different ways that the divine lives in every one of us. I shared a verse from the Upanishads earlier, and there's so many that keep reminding us over and over again, the divine lives within us. And when you take those two concepts and you merge them together, to me, what they mean is every single one of us is today that physical manifestation of God on earth. We are, each of us, the embodiment of the divine in form on earth who have taken birth to bring back light to the darkness, to bring back dharma to the adharma, to bring righteousness back to lack of righteousness. And so you don't have to be a Hindu. It doesn't say, you know, I, I incarnate for Hindus or I incarnate in a Hindu way or I incarnate only for those who speak an Indian language. 
it's here on earth. And all of the, the teachings, it's not, you know, God lives in Hindus or God lives in Indians. It's in all, in all. And so if we all could have that awareness, that experience of being an embodiment of, a reflection of, a manifestation of the divine with the awareness that the divine comes here on earth in whatever that may mean in our own religious or spiritual traditions in order to bring back light to the darkness, to bring back truth to falsehood, then we would realize that each of us has that very sacred opportunity and responsibility to be that embodiment. It, you know, it reminds me of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It's not, it's not an exclusively Hindu concept. St. Francis says, oh Lord, make me an instrument of thy mercy, of thy grace. Where there is darkness, let me bring light. Hate, where there is hatred, let me bring love. And, and so if we can tap into that, regardless of what religious tradition or scriptures we go through, and move through the world as those instruments in God's hands, or vehicles, or vessels, or tools, or embodiments, or channels, however we may conceive of it, then we move through the world as divine, meeting divine. And so whether I'm meeting a tree or I'm meeting another human, it's the divine meeting the divine. You know, when we say namaste, it literally means the divine in me bows in recognition of the divine in you. So even if we could all just start saying namaste, which of course COVID taught us, no more handshaking. Now we fold our hands, say namaste. Healthier for the sanitation, healthier for the spirituality. We'd learn to recognize the divine in all. It's beautiful. Thank, thank you so much, Sabiji. Namaste, indeed. I. I think that's a good idea to, to say that. So you know, I, want, I want to add one note to this hand. They have actually measured the energy fields radiating from the body. When you hold your two palms together in the inner greeting, that energy radiation is reinforced. Whereas if you hold your hand together, clasping your fingers, it tends to be blocked. So this is for humility. Okay, in the Christian tradition, you, you pray. In Hinduism and the Eastern religions, you, you ask for tamasta for others, just as it is for you. You help the others. You reinforce everything together. So it's a very good thing. Even in modern science, now we discover that this is not just a symbol. It's actually true. We are sending energy. We are sending warmth and radiation. And we hold our heads, hands together. Sorry, I just wanted to add this because I think it's so very relevant. Yes, indeed. Um, I just had a thought that 
personally, I always found it very interesting that the founder of Buddhism, Prince Siddhartha Gautama, was a Hindu, and then he became the Buddha later. And Buddhism is a big part of the Chinese culture. So, Fred, I would like to know your thoughts. What are your insights about the similarities or the distinctions of the Chinese practices and Hinduism as a worldview? Fred? Yes, I think that, um, you know, my interest, because with the dawn of the new era, is that we need a new language for shared experiences. And as the world gets integrated into a global reality with global challenge, uh, this is a work that's imminent to be happy, uh, to happen uh, for religions uh, to come with a common language. And I think because of so much um, historical and cultural backdrops and misunderstanding and other kind of uh, non-favorable religious conflict that has caused to the world, it's extremely difficult to do cross-referencing in a lot of the religious sense. So I feel that um, a, a quantum science, uh, a new language of holism or oneness, where consciousness is the divine, that when people uh, see the clustering of energy to create appearance, people have to understand how form and its essence move back and forth because essence is an expression of its form and form is an expression of its essence. And so to understand this mind, body, spirit, being or, uh, or machinery, how it works in how the consciousness um, actually move into your mind and body expression and how energy and consciousness express itself. Now, our language is nothing but agreeing on shared experience and therefore through an education process, it defines the form so we can communicate. But at this crossroad of uh, humanity, uh, where globally integration is must and global collaboration, it's a must, um, to solve human problem, it presents a timing of otherwise very miraculous, holistic divinity of making the form called humanity and earth and express itself in this, in this format. So when you're holistic in reality and the experience is nothing but an expression of this holism, but distorted by our language and all the other fulfillment uh, of the system, uh, we really don't know. Now, quantum science may describe how uh, how the system, uh, how the uh, holism works, and uh, and how moment to moment is calibrated. So, what seems to be um, mystical and miraculous, miraculous, it's actually in the concept of uh, quantum science explainable, not in detail, but conceptually. So if you look at nature, right? Nature is an expression um, of its essence and everything is order 
And it looks like very miraculously everything is ordered. There is no chaos. We observe chaos because it's nothing outside is real. Everything only happens in our mind. And the minute our mind is uh, not natural, uh, then fear comes in and then we see chaos. But there's no chaos. And so there's a need for a language, which is the endeavor uh, I would like to focus because there's a real need to cross religious barriers to create a new language. So it's totally understandable Hinduism and, uh, and Chinese would describe that reality. Chinese also have many gods and divinity too, piety and stuff as well. Um, and in your holistic, which they call the, uh, the cosmos or the consciousness net, what we call the, uh, the wuji, the, uh, it is the, uh, not the absolute, absolute is the taiji, and wuji is the, the no form, the ultimate no form. And the Tao, which is evolutionary energy, uh, which is the never changing change. There's only thing that doesn't change is the Tao, which is evolutionary energy, because the form is nothing but ever changing calibration uh, of the universe, which is the form. And so uh, everything, of course, is divine because it's an expression of the same one source. In a three-dimensional world that we perceive they are separated and we perceive that what they call is holism, a systemic a relational reality, which is, of course, not true, but we call it relationship. We call it system. There is no relationship. There's no system, but we perception that we need to work on. And therefore, uh, the third eye, uh, which in Buddhism, actually have five layers of the third eye to reach the Buddha nature arm of enlightenment, right? So uh, a deepened uh, worldview of seeing what reality is into different levels of consciousness. And so um, I think it is uh, important uh, certainly for me to try to understand it, uh, not so much in the context of, of Buddhism, which is really a, a same worldview, but another branch of Hinduism. And it's quite similar to, um, you know, uh, Jainism or some other branch, which comes from the same origin. So Chinese, Taoism, all that is very similar. And that's why Buddhism is also part of the Tao that's tradition as well and integrate really well. Um, however, the methodology of getting there have many ways of reaching there. How does the form transmute energy? There are many ways. Different routes, um, you can get there. Different practice, you can get there. It all has different practices. And depending on the person, uh, they can choose the path for themselves to reach the higher level of consciousness. So in the Taoist tradition, it works heavily on energy work, from the body to the mind to the spirit, heavy on energy work. So, uh, but you know, Buddhists, there's also a lot of mind work. It's primarily 
deep mind work that has gone to China because they didn't take the body work of yoga. They brought the mind work to China and they integrated with the Chinese tradition. So, uh, so therefore they have these, all these um, variation of the same reality, which I think we needed to have more dialogue to come up with a much better scientific common language or common sense to happen so that we can share experience, we can improve collaboration, and we can avoid the conflict due to different worldview of words. And so uh, I think Hinduism uh, is very rich and more embracive, and you can see there are many more practices based on the same principle uh, of refining the relationship between the form uh, and, its, uh, and its essence, which we call the divine. I hope I uh, kind of explain myself. It's complicated to, uh, to, to use words uh, to explain. But anyway. Thank I you. Think I think, Fred, you have explained this beautifully. You are speaking the new paradigm in all the things that you are saying, and it's all very clear, and it's very important in these days to recognize all this. Thank you for your comment. Thank you, Fred. I think everybody here, and I believe that our worldwide audience and everybody is listening to this podcast, we understand that the goal is to blend the knowledge of the West with the wisdom of the East to inspire us all. So I think that's truly something that we need in these challenging times. And Sadviji, can you tell us more about how you are doing this? Because everybody here has both the Eastern and the Western perspectives. Erwin talked about his experiences. Fred was also uh, educated in the West, born in the East. You came from the West to the East. So I think everybody is sort of a bridge here between two things that are sort of separate from each other. But in reality, I don't think they are separate. What do you think? I, I agree with you fully. They're, they're not so separate. I come, I come from the West. I come from a world that we all know well, which is Western academia and Western science. I was getting a PhD in pediatric neuropsychology and the world of science, especially what you would consider modern Western you know, Newtonian science, say not, not yet into the world of quantum science, is a world in which truth is determined by the, the tools we have. So a couple of hundred years ago, the truth was that the earth was flat and the sun revolved around it. And if that was what you wrote on an exam in school, you would have gotten an A. And if you had so much as dared to suggest that the earth might not be flat and that perhaps the sun did not revolve around it, you would be failed on the exam and 
considered a heretic and all sorts of other horrible consequences would befall you. Now, the truth has not changed. The earth has not changed shape. The orbits has not changed between the sun and the earth. All that's happened is that the tools of science have changed. As the tools have become better, the truth of science changed. Now, I mention this because when you speak about there not being a difference, you know, when we speak about science and spirituality, which to me is really on the most basic and overly simplistic level, but nonetheless, we'll go with it for right now, of the distinction between when we think about Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. The Western tends much more to be rooted in science and the East tends much more to be rooted in spirituality. And yet there's so much of an overlap, especially as our science improves as science shifts from a Newtonian viewpoint to a quantum viewpoint. They are, quote unquote, discovering what sages and rishis and yogis and mystics told us for thousands of years. They're now discovering it as true. And so as long as the world of science in academia and in the West doesn't try to claim jurisdiction over that over which it has no jurisdiction. So it's great for things that can be put in a beaker, you know, melted or burned in some way on a Bunsen burner that can be seen with a telescope or a microscope. But anything that doesn't have a weight or a volume or an area or a size or something that you could see with a microscope or telescope, science doesn't know what to do about it. And again, that's fine. Nobody's saying science should, as long as science doesn't then say, well, nothing else exists. In the East, the tools that we use, the East is also very scientific. Its spirituality is very scientific, but the tools that they use are internal tools. And it's, it's actually amazing. You know, in India, there's something called the Panchang. And the Panchang is like an almanac in which you could look at it and see years and years and years from now when it's going to be a full moon, when it's going to be a new moon, what the, you know, uh, position of the sun and the moon and the planets is going to be. And we've had a panchang for thousands of years. It was developed by rishis and sages with no mathematical tools, no calculators, no telescopes, but by using their internal tools. People can't believe that that which was developed thousands of years ago is fully accurate about how the moon is, how the constellations are, how everything is. But they used inner tools. And I think for me, that's the difference is the capital T truth is the same. We're getting to the same place, but the tools that we use are different. And because the tools that the West usually relies on are external tools, our truth is only as good as our tools are 
sophisticated because the East relies on inner tools. There's a much broader scope for vision and awareness and realization. So as far as the way that I'm, I'm bridging this, I love bringing in science. I mean, I, I do a lot of spiritual teaching and I love to bring science into it to say, hey, you know what, our scriptures say this, but so does modern science. Here's what studies in psychology, in neurology are showing us. Because a lot of people find it a lot easier to grab on to a scientific study or a scientific fact than they do to something that comes out of the scriptures. And that's fine. It doesn't matter how people reach the truth. All that matters is they get there. And so if you can get them in there with a scientific study or experiment or a fact, or you can get them in there through showing what is written in scripture, either way, it doesn't matter. And as our scientific tools get better and better, the truth starts to overlap more and more. So it's exciting. And especially as the world of quantum science has gotten more and more advanced, it's, it's really exciting to see science now saying things that are written in our scriptures. Irvin, what, what would you like to add? That is exactly the case. Science actually does not have definite limitations or limits. <clears throat> The only thing that you require to have a science is something that makes a difference. If it makes no difference whatsoever, then it's imagination. That is something that you just can think about, talk about. But now we notice that thought, thinking itself makes a difference. Visioning, communicating to each other, even, even with just intentions, without voice over distance, becoming being healthy or less healthy, interacting with, with our bodies. All of that is possible to look at science. Science starts, yes, it did start like that, modern science, trying to explain things in terms of bits of matter floating about in space and time and interacting. <clears throat> Today, there are no bits of matter and no real interactions, because interactions mean that they do separate things that are related. Today we have a new view of the sciences, a new worldview, a new paradigm, when things are not just related together, they are basically one. That is what the quantum experience, uh, exper experiments are telling us. So we are back to coming back to the ancient wisdom as Sarajit is telling us, that that's a tremendous discovery. We are not limited to matter. We are not limited to, to energy. We are only limited to something that makes some difference to something else. This whole world could very well be, and I believe it is, a quantum field in which different frequencies come about. You know, Tesla said, if you want to know the secrets of the universe, think of frequency, energy, and, and uh, information. <clears throat> That is basically the, the, the world is energy, is frequency, 
and it's inter interaction, but not interaction between separate things. No separation, therefore no interaction. It's joint action together. We are joined together with the others. If you can recognize this, that you are not different, you are not just relating to other others, we are one with the others. That is the new scientific worldview, and that is a that is showing this mathematically is a surface from science. It's showing that the ancient ancient rec recognitions, the ancient insights, as Fred was talking about, as Sarajevo of course is talking about now, all of these have a basis in reality. The rea reality that we can recognize as being the simplest explanation of the things that appear in our experience. Also, sciences, also Einstein said that the simplest explanation of the things that we experience, that is good science, that is good religion. And all of this brings us from separateness to oneness, brings us to oneness, not just of life on earth, but of life on earth and life everywhere in the universe, and life and galaxies, life on planets, and inter interstellar space. The biggest picture is the same as the smallest picture. They are, they are all realizations of each other. Form and method, Fred was also talking about this. So science is coming back to great wisdom and it's a wonderful development. The great wisdom is needed so we don't forget what the ancients had known intuitively and instinctively. We can base ourselves on that be knowing that this is as close as we can get to the truth. Nothing beyond that, that we can reach. With our human mind, accept that through intuition, through this divine power that we can perceive in moments of great depths and great deep meditation, great prophetic insight. That and the measurement of movement, all of them belong to the same thing, the same world, one world, in which there is no separateness. So I think this is what I believe is the new paradigm, is the new science, the new religion, the new divinity, a divine world in which there is no separation. That is a divine world. It cannot be anything else but that. So it's as wonderful to discuss this in terms of the Upanishads and Hinduism, which is a source, an eternal and treasure, treasure source of wisdom and insight. Thank you for this discussion. Thank you, Erwin. These are beautiful concluding words for today's podcast episode. Fred, what would you like to add? Well, you know, one like to add to Erwin's um, uh, comments on science. Uh, as we found out the whole universe is a life system, not separable and whole. And that's just on the material expression. And there are deeper cosmos that wrap it, and it's in everything. So everything is, in effect, divine. And that uh, we cannot use the Newtonian methodology uh, to, to look at science anymore, because um, everything's whole. So you cannot have non-localization issues. Uh, but, however, we're in process of human evolution, the next level of enlightenment, even going through the science, human continue to evolve into higher level consciousness and really looking at the creative process of life itself, which is 
how do we actually go through the cycle of creation and then disappearance and creation again? So I'm very hopeful as human evolve, we are not seeing this very uh, chaotic world that is going through cycle of change of evolution. And yet we actually should be very excited that, that the evolution always go to the challenge uh, like uh, a lot of time you would not be able uh, to find solution to your suffering. The suffering by itself, like emotion, is a direction of your evolution and awakening. And so I'm very hopeful the science going to move on to go to the next myth of the creation process and how the cycle repeats and further uh, validate this life science of Eastern tradition of seeing it through the mind and recording the reality of that experience. And I think that uh, the holistic nature of Eastern wisdom and the it's gonna help uh, uh, point to the new level of scientific development in the science of life. And there will be nothing else other than one science, the science of life it's creation cycles, and uh, therefore we understand this mind, body, spirit, what intervention we can do to be consciously evolving. Thank you. Beautiful said, Fred. Thank you so much. And I think we are running out of time. So I would like to ask Sadviji, would you please offer the audience a kind of a blessing, something that they can receive and take with them after they listen to this beautiful, beautiful episode on Hinduism. Sure, thank you for the beautiful opportunity. There is a very sacred mantra prayer that we chant and I'll do it in Sanskrit, and then I will give you the English. It says, Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Hamsoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. And it means, oh God, lead us from the illusion, the falsehood of separation into the truth of oneness. Lead us from the darkness of ignorance in which we suffer and bring suffering to others into the light of wisdom. Lead us from the false identification with the physical body that is born, that changes, and that perishes into the true identification with the eternal soul, the spirit, divinity, which is never born, and never perishes. Om, peace, peace, peace.
Thank you so much, Sadhguruji. Such a joy and such an honor and blessing to be together. Irwin, Fred, final words for this episode, please. No words are needed. I think we are moved <laughs> it. Thank you very much, Avitri. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. As ever, a compelling note to conclude on. I am Nora Cesar with our hosts, Erwin Laszlo and Frederick Tsao. And thanking our today's very special guest, Sadviji, and our worldwide audience, as well as our wonderful production team led by Kenichi Sugihara, Taisuki, and from Sadviji's side, Priya, who helped to make this episode possible. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, this is the place to tune in. We invite you to join us for more episodes of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, as well as to give the same book to yourself or for a loved one. It is a true companion for these challenging times. The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So remember, this time when building that new paradigm for humankind, let's include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. Thank you for listening. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, the Octave Institute, and Select Books Publishers. Our theme music is Chimera by Biba Dupont. For more information about Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, please visit our website at www.thelasloinstitute.com. If you enjoy our program, please remember to subscribe to us on your podcast service. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating to help other listeners learn about our show. See you next time.